Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, a science-led biopharmaceutical company dedicated to elevating conversations about biomarker testing to improve outcomes for advanced cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Howard Hoxter, Anise Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about alternative medicine versus conventional therapy with Drs. Skylar Johnson and James Yu. Dr. Johnson is a resident in therapeutic radiology, and Dr. Yu is an associate professor of therapeutic radiology at Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Uh, so, Skylar, I understand your uh, your training in therapeutic radiology. Yes, that's correct. I've been in radiation oncology for three years and did an internship for one year, so I'm four years deep. Got it. And James, you're an old uh, hat or yeah, something, as we would say. This is my ninth year on faculty, if you can believe it. Well, I can believe it because I've only been here four years. Okay. So as far as I know, you've <laughs> been here 20 right. years, but you look too young for that. So, so that's good. So, uh, And just to start off, Skylar, I assume that you went into therapeutic radiology because you were interested in offering radiation treatments to patients, no? That's a that's a fair assessment. Actually, I have kind of a personal connection to cancer care. My wife was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma when I was a second-year medical student. Oh, wow. And so throughout that process, I realized it was a great field to be in, an opportunity to make a, a big difference in the care of patients, and that's kind of what led me into radiation oncology. Well, great, and, um, and certainly we... We love our radiation oncologists and uh, <laughs> value you all and refer patients to you, less so in my field uh, than, than in, uh, which is leukemia, where we need you less, but sometimes we do, of course. So, Skylar, what got you interested in alternative therapies, which would seem to be like the anti-radiation? Yeah, so I think it's something that we were seeing with increasing frequency in the clinic. We were seeing patients who were initially refusing their uh recommended cancer therapies. And then on the flip side, we were seeing them come in late with more advanced cancers that had spread to lymph nodes or distant sites just based on the fact that they wanted to upfront try something a little bit different or unproven. And this was concerning. We went to the literature and we said, how can we help these patients make an informed decision? And there was nothing out there. So we felt like it was an important question that needed to be studied further. So tell me about the uh, subject of your study and what you guys were, what questions you were asking and how you went about that. I mean, I, from my perspective as a cancer doctor, you know, patients bring in uh, lots of lists of all sorts of supplements they take. Turmeric is a big one these days and uh, any number of other things. Uh, so what, what do you include? Uh, in alternatives, and sort of what was your question? How'd you go about it? Yeah, so basically I came, I mean, I do a lot of cancer outcomes research in large databases and uh, found this particular code that I, I thought was very interesting, and it was basically patients who chose unproven medical therapies 
in lieu of conventional cancer therapy. No, wait, just, just, just a minute. I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure that our audience doesn't know what a code is or Got a it. big data set is, because I know that before my wife and I started collaborating, because uh, she's an outcomes uh, health economist, uh, about ten years ago, I didn't know what they were. So, can you? What's a big data set and what's a code? So basically. There's, there's information that's collected about cancer patients nationally within a large database. And every time a patient makes a decision or information about the patient is collected in this data set, and then we can look at this information to evaluate outcomes. All the data is anonymous. Yes. I was going to say, is the NSA involved no, here? No, no. Citizen <laughs> Four? Are right. we talking about I have to turn off my cell phone now? I mean, these data sets were created... Uh, to provide uh, national information on you know how we're doing as a society in terms of curing folks. And so they're not spying on Steve Gordon what medications I'm Steve taking Gore. and whether they should be reporting that to my it's employer. It's actually illegal to try and figure out who Steve Gore is oh, in I'm the very, database. I'm very relieved now. Right. Okay. So 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 there are these organizations, and I guess uh, some of them are like the. National Institutes of Health and stuff uh, that are agglomerating all this data, this stuff. Medi- I guess the Centers for Medicare and others. It's a Commission on uh, Cancer accredited centers. It's basically for a, this particular database. Yeah, it's yeah. a it's basically a joint venture with. Uh, it's uh, what is it? Uh, I mean, it's the the. Um, College of Surgeons. Yeah, I think the College, right? of, College Surgeons. of Surgeons. It's, it's the Commission on Cancer. It's a database centers. called the National Cancer. So database. it's fifteen hundred basically cancer centers uh, nationwide, academic, and both community centers, and it captures 70% of cancer diagnoses annually. So the patients get entered, the patients anonymously get entered into a database, right? And what information gets collected about them? So it's their age, their diagnosis, their stage, their education, their socioeconomic status, and then their survival types of treatments that they received so on and so forth. Okay, and all of that's in some kind of a code? Is there, there's a code for different treatments or what? Yes, uh-huh. exactly right. Okay, so you found this, this unusual code. Yeah, so it was, it was kind of unusually specific. And so when we look at, the, look at the code, we saw that these patients were using unproven medical therapies for the treatment of their cancer and also refused surgery, radiation, or chemotherapy. Does it show that they refused? Yes. Huh, Okay. Because, like, when I have a patient on supplements, I don't, like, put in a code that says that. I, like, I wonder how that happens. Right. So the, the, the registrars, right, the folks who are abstracting the data will, will read your note and say, say you oh. get a patient, oh, you know, Mr. So-and-so refused therapy and in and favor in of, you know, vitamins or in favor of baking soda. So we know who you are, people. Okay, got it. But it's anonymous. It's anonymous. Yeah. We don't know who you are. <laughs> we don't know who you are. Yeah. And it's but we know what you're doing. Right. And it's important distinction as well is if you're seeing a patient, you're likely offering them conventional cancer therapies, and they may be doing something on the side or in addition to what you're recommending. You may not think that that's of particular interest. You may not put it in your note for a registrar to abstract that data. But those patients who refuse sure, those therapies, right. it's more... It stands out a little bit more, and it is something that a doctor would note. And a doctor would want to note it because, if nothing else, from a medical legal standpoint, he or she wants to document that he offered or she offered uh, an appropriate therapy and explain why it might be 
the usual recommendation or her recommendation and why the patient declined that. I mean, I think that's what most of us would, would want to do, if nothing else, exactly. to cover our own butts, right? right. I mean, exactly. Right. Okay, so so you found this code, and and you went to James and said, James, I've got a code. What, what, how did that work out? <laughs> it was basically that. It was kind of a, a eureka. Uh, eureka. 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 That's the word. Right. It was basically a eureka moment because I think that it's an important question. Like like I said, we'd been seeing it in clinic, and it's an important question that there's really no literature out there to, to speak of. And, and basically, these are hard patients to follow because usually they say they're going to do this, and, and doctors, you know, they talk to them, and they eventually leave and, and sometimes don't return, so we don't really know what happens to them. And we were, we were seeing it in the clinic, and, and we would see patients come in in a more advanced stage of cancer than really they should have been in, um, and they would report they had tried something else before coming in, and, and we didn't know what the impact of that was, whether, oh, maybe they're just as curable as, uh, as folks who try standard therapy first because, you know, of all the great things about modern medicine and try and cure these folks. But it, to us, it seemed like those patients were doing worse because they were, they were more advanced when they came in. Yeah, but we know you conventional medicine people have this bias against alternative therapies, right? So you're looking... Uh, right? right, you're looking to feel that way. So, I, I would say. So one of the the I know you, James. One of the things about the looking at the data uh, w was that all of the biases seemed to favor alternative medicine patients. Okay. They were younger. Well, let's wait. Let's just wait a minute on that. Okay. Okay. So you've got the code. <laughs> you shared it with James. And now what? I mean, I've got a pile of patients who have a code that they're using something else. I don't know what to do with that. I would have no idea what to do with that. Well, we basically had two questions going into it. We wanted to know who's making this decision and what is the impact of that decision. And so we started by characterizing the patients who were choosing alternative medicines. Just describing who they were. Exactly. Just describing Without their names. Were. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and then we compared their survival to patients who were using conventional cancer therapies. Okay. So, so who is using alternative therapies? Who were these people or are these people? What yeah, kind of people it's a are great question, and, and this is a really interesting finding that's kind of been passed over in the, the lay media quite a bit, is, is that patients who are making this decision are, are generally younger patients who have higher socioeconomic statuses. They're generally higher educated. They're healthier. They have fewer comorbidities. They typically live in the Mountain West or the West. I mean, these are healthy folks going into it, so you would think that they would be the cohort that does better. All things equal. You mean that that do better medically? Do better medically. Coming in as exactly. Better. You're younger. You're healthier. You have fewer other problems. You're you should be doing better in terms of your cancer cure. You know, it's kind of interesting, and maybe we can get into it into the second half. But I I think about how this is also potentially the you know, the information millennial generation, if you will, that has access to how to do research and, and that might be the least likely, but that's something we, we can talk about. Okay, so so you described who they are. They're not, you know, people of a certain age like me, <laughs> although I've got plenty of patients my age who are doing this too, okay? Uh, and, and then, I, I don't know, it doesn't seem to me like you can just compare them, like, you know, because maybe one of them has a little ditzel of a lung cancer, and the patient's getting chemo or radiation, have big, big old lung cancers, right? Yeah. So they're, that's not going to be apples and apples comparison. No, but like, what did you do with that data? Uh, so we actually did a matching comparison. Basically, we matched two patients who did conventional cancer therapies to one patient who chose alternative medicine therapies on 
specific characteristics that we thought would impact their survival. So we matched them on their cancer type. We matched them on their age, their stage of disease. We matched them on their insurance type. We matched them on their race. We matched them on the year that they were diagnosed. Basically, everything that we thought was important in regards to their survival. So basically, you take patient A who's not getting uh Conventional, who opt out of conventional therapy, and you look at the features of this patient, and then you find uh, a patient in the same uh, demographic, treated around the same time for the same cancer, uh, in all the same features, or you find two of them. Is that is that in exactly that right? Okay, gotcha. And and did you do this across cancers, or did you limit yourself to certain cancers? Uh, so we did it for the four most common cancers. So we looked at breast, prostate. Uh, lung and colorectal cancer and curable stages one oh. through three and both uh, radiation and chemotherapy or as well as surgery as well as surgery so some of these patients aren't even getting surgery exactly none of the patients in the alternative medicine group got surgery really wow how many patients then were in this database that you looked at i mean how many patients did you select and uh, so basically there was 280 patients who chose alternative medicines and then we compared this to the two patients who got conventional cancer therapy, basically That's over 800 patients total. Right. Okay. Um, I don't know what to guess the outcome was. I have no idea. I'm going to guess that uh, maybe it turned out that it didn't matter that it's for these uh, healthy guys and, and women, they can you know do stuff and, and they're still healthy enough to get treated so that everything comes out okay. Steve, you'd be wrong. <laughs> you'd be wrong. Unfortunately, and 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 you know, it, it was a little sad when we when we saw the outcomes, and we can go into it more. Well, give us a little hint before the uh... <laughs> big picture. Yeah. So basically, uh, patients who chose alternative medicines for the treatment of their curable cancer were at two and a half times greater risk of death over the study period than patients who chose conventional cancer therapies. Ouch. Well, that's a, that's a sobering thought, uh, but right now we're going to have to take a short break for a medical minute. Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, working to pioneer targeted lung cancer treatments and advance knowledge of diagnostic testing. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. It is estimated that over 200,000 men in the U.S. will be diagnosed with prostate cancer this year, with almost 3,000 new cases in Connecticut alone. One in six American men will develop prostate cancer in the course of his lifetime. Major advances in the detection and treatment of prostate cancer have dramatically decreased the number of men who will die from this disease. Screening for prostate cancer can be performed quickly and easily in a physician's office using two simple tests, a physical exam and a blood test. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for prostate cancer. The Artemis machine is a new technology being used at Smilo Cancer Hospital that enables targeted biopsies to be performed as opposed to unnecessarily removing multiple cores from the prostate. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. Uh, this is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guests, Dr. Skylar Johnson and Dr. James Yu, to discuss patient choices for cancer treatment, in particular what happens uh, to patients who choose less conventional therapies as opposed to recommended uh, more traditional medical therapies. Uh, so, Skylar, before the 
before the break, you kind of dropped this bombshell that uh, in this big database you looked at and you found 200 almost 300 patients who had opted not to get treated, including not getting surgery for their presumably potentially curative cancers, I suppose, um, and compared them uh, to similar patients uh, who went the usual route. And you said there was a two and a half times likelihood, a two and a half increased times risk. I know I'm not saying that in English uh, for the patients of death. So the patients who had alternative therapies had almost three times or two and a half times the risk of dying during the study period. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly correct. It was uh, really sobering to see that number. And we look at these in, in different ways, and we have figures and, and kind of these graphs. And we saw, you know, these people who chose alternative medicines. And it was, it was kind of sad to think, wow, these people could have been on this other portion of the graph. They could have been, they could be alive. You know, uh, just for our audience uh, who may not know, the Journal of the National Cancer Institute is really one of the most prestigious medical journals uh, in the United States. Uh, and so for them to pick up on this, it's not easy to get a, an article into there. So they must have really seen this as a, as a really important finding. Um, so um, was that true across the board uh, for all the cancers, or, or was it more true for certain specific cancers? Yeah, that's a really great question. So when we looked at this, we separated out the cancers because this was of interest. Yeah. And uh, the interesting thing was that it was, the finding was surprising in, in a couple of ways. It's, I actually thought that people might have worse survival than the, the two-and-a-half times greater risk. And when we look at it, it's because the patients have prostate cancer and breast cancer made up the majority of the data set. And, and the majority of those patients had lower risks of disease, lower stages of disease. And sometimes it takes a lot of years for those patients to actually die. And our, our follow-up period in our study, the amount of time that we followed these patients, it's only about five-and-a-half years. So it's relatively short. So when we looked at these by diseases, prostate cancer actually didn't make much of a difference, but it's like, because it's I said, it's only five and a half years. Usually we don't see changes until 10, 15 years down the road. Mm -hmm. But for breast cancer, women were at, you know, five times greater risk. Uh, colorectal cancer is about four and a half times greater risk. And for uh, lung cancer, it was two times greater risk of hmm. death. And what percentage of these uh, patients, of these alternative patients, um, eventually got uh, conventional treatments? What, did they mostly move on to conventional treatments, or did most of them decline, or you don't know? So we don't know that. I mean, this database captures initial therapy. Um, so it's a snapshot. It's a snapshot. So it's, it's even more sobering then, because some of these folks who started out on alternative medicine then went on to get traditional therapy. But you don't it's know that still, for sure. We don't know that for sure, but some of them probably did. And it still impacted their survival. And so you don't know either then, I suppose, uh, like let's say somebody had an early stage breast cancer where a lumpectomy with or without radiation might have cured them. You don't know what percentage of them when they, uh, you know, when things, as things went along, presented with a higher stage that might have been harder to cure. You can't tell that from your database or can you? In other words, did they start off with an early stage disease and then present with metastatic disease that could have been prevented? Do you know? No, we don't know that. And again, this is this is something that we mentioned in the discussion of the study is that we we likely the the number the two and a half times greater risk is likely lower than we imagine for some of the reasons I've already stated, and because these patients likely got treated later on. But a number of the patients 
probably showed up after having tried alternative medicines and ended up in our conventional medicine group. So we oh. don't know that for sure, but right. it's right. possible. Right. So it's not a. It's obviously not a perfect study, um, but it's. I think there is a, a huge uh, signal that it's sending us that initial alternative therapy within the database is matched as well as we possibly could still um, um, gives you a greater risk of dying of your cancer. So, I mean, what do we do with this information? I mean, it, it goes into a very prestigious journal. It, it's good for your CVs. It's important information. Uh, but obviously, uh, you know, these people in Colorado or wherever it is aren't reading the Journal of the National Cancer Institute, right? So they're going out to websites, I imagine, that's telling them that, uh, you know, that um, you know, locoboco berries or whatever else, uh, you know, is the way to go or acai berries or there's a noni yeah. berries from, uh, from the Pol- Polynesian islands was a big deal for a while. So I mean, how do we get that message across, or or is the data secure enough, or or do you have to study this? Do you have to do a randomized study of noni berries versus radiation, or what do you think? So so Skyler's been doing a phenomenal job getting the message out, and and we're trying to do that more and more. I mean, I'm not Oprah. Let me just no, say I know. You know, I, I, you know. <laughs> you're, you're making not even cr- Phil Donahue. You're, you're not going to make me cry here, Steve. Um, but. I think everybody's leaving with a car. Right, right. car. Door number three. Yeah. I think um, we have to get the message out as practitioners, uh, and, you know, through social media, um, through radio programs like this, that if you have a loved one who's considering non-traditional therapy for their cancer, please have them, you know, talk to a complementary, uh, um, for example, program that, that can maybe integrate that alternative therapy with standard therapy or, or talk to a, a, a traditional um, modern uh, uh, cancer doctor who can maybe, you know, allay their fears about the, the potential treatment. But, but please don't just do alternative therapy that you read about online or, or you heard from unscrupulous practitioners, it's not going to work. So tell me about this complementary approach. How is that different from alternative or? Yeah, so the the complementary approach is done in conjunction with conventional cancer therapies. So it's something that's done with conventional cancer therapies, and it's something that we see quite a bit. It's something that needs to be done openly with your physician because if you use the wrong complementary therapy, it can affect your conventional cancer therapies. So uh, generally, it needs to be done under close supervision. And that's entirely different than patients who choose alternative medicines, which was the purpose of this study, which are those patients who choose to forego conventional cancer therapies in favor of some unproven medical therapy. And not all complementary and integrative programs are the same. I mean, you really should go to one that's attached to a respected medical center, um, I think there's one here at Yale th- that will approach it from a scientific standpoint and one that will consider that complementary therapy in its relationship to standard uh, chemotherapies, radiation, surgery. All right. I, you know, I'd like to pick up on that in a minute. One question I have is um, whether there is a separate code in your database for complementary therapies. Can you look at that? 
Yeah, so this is a, a little bit of a spoiler alert, but this is something that we're, we're currently looking at. So there's patients who chose unproven medical therapies and then also received conventional cancer therapies as well, which is basically just complementary. And you're going to do a similar analysis then? Or? In process right now. Oh, great. That's that's awesome. So so back to James's comment about, well, you should do the complementary thing that's uh, what do they call the, the regular medicine? Allo medicine or something? There's some um, allopathic. Is the allopathic is the conventional thing? Is that uh, yeah? Well, homeo versus allo? Yeah, I guess it's yeah. It depends. They'll they'll say it's Western medicine or yeah. traditional medicine or allopathic. Yeah. Okay. Well, whatever, whatever the term might be, um, you know that we should uh, you know patients should use the the Yale version or the Columbia version of complementary medicine. Isn't that? I mean, don't we don't you think that that's just going to push these people away who are already very skeptical? Uh, you you guys are probably the wrong messengers. And uh, and they're you know this is going to be seen as co-opted complementary medicine. I'm I'm just guessing, right? I mean, you know, why would uh, any major medical center you know you know offer that which is you know really internet vetted and different? I mean, I'm really what what I think it's a problem that you guys aren't in some ways the best messengers for this, right? Yeah, it's a it's a huge problem, and I don't know what the the answer to that problem is, you I'm, know, in this I'm, regard. Hopefully, we've given. I mean, you're right. We're not going to convince the skeptic, but hopefully, the skeptic's sister can take our paper and show it to them, for example. And hopefully, we've provided a little ammunition in that war of facts versus um, fake news. Ooh. <laughs> Well, we won't go there. I, I would have to say that my personal experience, and not only in uh, cancer, but discussing, you know, with with anti-vaccine, you mm-hmm. know, people, uh, you know, it's it's it's. I'm not a, necessarily the right person to be discussing right. this with them because I'm an allo medicine guy mm-hmm. or a Western medicine guy, and I, you know, I, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, it would be kind of interesting if if you could find some spokespeople who are from that group who has realized that that wasn't necessarily the best decision for them uh, yeah, to be spokespeople. I don't know. It's really it's really tough because even the patients that we do see who have come in with more advanced cancers who have tried alternative therapies, they refuse to ever blame the fact that they tried an alternative therapy on the progression of their disease. Um, and so, I mean... They, and you don't, you probably just, don't push that on them either. No, right? not I mean, at all. It's not helpful. No, right? not at all. It's but it's a it's a it's a belief system and it's a strong belief. And unfortunately, we know based on other kind of scientific areas and studies that facts and statistics don't necessarily change somebody's beliefs. But I think that there are reasonable individuals who are on the fence about doing this because they may have been misinformed online. And we can have really open and honest discussions with them and build strong relationships of trust. And I think that they can be swayed. I really do. Mm -hmm. But that assumes they get to your office in the first place. Exactly. Right. So do you guys uh, pair with uh, any homeopaths or other, you know, Asian medicine people in the community? Have you considered uh, some kind of community outreach about that? So we have clinical trials ongoing in our department looking into Chinese herbal medicines. I think uh, Dr. Higgins is, uh, has, a, has an open study. Right. So we're, it's not like we're, we're closed off to the idea that other cultures have something to contribute to medicine. It's just that it needs to be done in a way that generates knowledge and doesn't place the patients at risk for 
progression of their disease. No, I'm thinking more in terms of partnering, in terms of uh, getting these alternative practitioners on board uh, to be uh, approaching this more as a complementary thing. I mean, I think this could be a really interesting uh, community model uh, if you could successfully get them to opt in and decrease the number of patients who are putting themselves at risk. And I think Skyler, really how, how's your uh, interactions with alternative medicine folks uh, online? Has it been? Yeah, I mean, are it's, they looking it's to seem, collaborate yeah. with you? No, not necessarily. I mean, it's it's hard. There's it seems to be two schools of thought in, for complementary practitioners, and it's the schools of thought are generally that. You shouldn't offer any alternative therapy. It should always be done in, in conjunction with conventional cancer therapies. And then there's providers who uh, will treat people without conventional cancer therapies. And it's really these kind of two schools of thoughts um, that make it difficult uh, for us. But the, there are those who uh, there's a society of integrative oncology that's been very supportive of the study and has um, you know, mentioned it quite a bit on social media. Um, but the other practitioners, it's it's hard to know how to reach them. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I earlier in my career, I was uh, studying a uh, a drug in uh, in leukemias uh, called sodium phenylbutyrate um, that was actually being studied by the NCI because they had isolated isolated it from something called antineoplastons that was uh, an alternative therapy, but that people really believed in. And uh, once I had the NCI-sponsored study, I heard from a lot of patients who wanted to get this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, I, I became very close to that community, uh, interestingly. So um, so I, I know that it's a challenge, and those people are out there and, and open the door, and they come. Yeah, well, well there's still individuals who are offering anti-neoplastin therapies um, out there. Dr. Skylar Johnson is a resident in therapeutic radiology, and Dr. James Yu is an associate professor of therapeutic radiology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.